Christ Church, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Jude. As we come now to these final two verses, we're ending this short series in the book of Jude. I pray that uh, these sermons have been beneficial to you. We'll look this evening at Jude verses 24 and 25, and please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word We thank you um, for this wonderful doxological benediction at the end of this difficult book of Jude. We thank you that you make promises to us in your word, promises to bless us and to keep us, to love us, and that you also proclaim to us the wondrous riches of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that as we Look at your word this evening. We would be filled by your spirit. Illumine our hearts by the power of your spirit that we might see Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jude's short letter packs a punch. In this letter, Jude boldly stands firm in the truth of God's word, and he does not hold back his strong condemnation, even his damnation of the wicked men who have infiltrated the church and are seeking to lead God's people astray and God's flock away from those green pastures of his word and from the love and support of their good shepherd into utter darkness. But Jude, like the Apostle Paul and like so many before and since, Jude is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for he holds his ground against the enemies of Christ by proclaiming the truth. Jude brings God's prior revelation all throughout this letter. He's bringing God's prior revelation to bear by outlining for these opponents the exact punishment and judgment that awaits them should they continue in their sin and rebellion against God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Lord. Jude, throughout this letter, calls all Christians to contend for the faith. That's his thesis statement in the early parts of this letter. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in doing so, in contending for the faith, Jude provides for you and me an example An example of what it looks like to fight for the truth, to fight for our precious faith. Jude does not cower. He doesn't waver. But instead, he boldly declares what God's word says is true. That those who live in licentiousness and and all manner of wickedness will suffer a punishment of eternal fire. In this short letter, Jude is calling you and me to stand firm in our convictions, to contend for the faith, 
When all around my soul gives way, you and I must not concede even an inch to our enemies. But instead, we must, as the hymn writer declares, we must proclaim, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Dear one, if anyone tries to get you to move from Christ, your solid rock, do not let them. Christ alone is all our hope and stay. And in Christ alone will we find mercy that leads to eternal life. But the world around us, our culture daily, tries to get us to move, doesn't it? To unsettle us, to make us doubt God's word, to make us question the sufficiency of God's word, to make us doubt uh, the need for salvation at all, and certainly to downplay or ignore that essential need for Christ's atoning work on the cross on our behalf. Culture wants us to doubt the promises of God. And these kinds of uh, infiltrations that the culture tries to make into our daily lives are not always blatant, are they? Our enemy, the devil, is more clever and more nefarious than that. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan and his ways will often appear to be close to the truth. He will appear to us as an angel of light, someone we think we need to listen to, saying things that we might think, uh, maybe God said something like that or close to that, making us doubt as he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Satan is the great deceiver, the father of lies. He has been lying from the beginning. And his one aim is to lead God's people astray, away from the light and into utter darkness. Paul then goes on in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, to say that since Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, he says, quote, It is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And this is precisely what Jude tells us throughout this letter is happening in the churches and what, others have, uh, what, what he and others warn can happen in any church. False teachers will infiltrate the church to lead God's people away. It's part of Paul's uh, admonition to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, isn't it? That wolves will come from among you to lead you astray, from among the people of God. And so Christians must stand firm against all manner of false teaching and must fight for the faith with their last breath must fight for that faith that's been handed down to us because our eternal destinies depends upon it. Because we can so easily be led astray by false teaching. One of the ways that we have seen throughout the book of Jude that men have deceived the, Jude's audience that he's writing to, his immediate audience, one of the ways that they've been deceived is through sexual immorality. These men live licentiously. That is, they treat the gospel of grace 
as if it were a license to sin. There are those people whom Paul responds to in Romans 6 who might ask, shouldn't we just continue to sin so that grace might abound? Wouldn't that give God even more glory if I sin even more? Paul's answer and and Jude's answer throughout this letter is a clear and resounding by no means. Grace is not a license to sin. For Christians, as Paul says, are dead to sin. We can no longer live in it. This licentious attitude that Jude responds to throughout his letter, especially when it's applied to our sexual ethics, is still alive and well today in the world especially, but even in the church. In his excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman traces the history of our society's expressive individualism by looking at key thinkers who changed the way that we understand uh, selfhood or what it means to be a person or, or, or human identity. In his chapter on the atheist psychologist Sigmund Freud, Truman writes about Freud's thought process and approach to psychology. And he says, Truman says this, quote, If happiness is the desired goal of all human beings, then for Freud, the pleasure principle, the quest, that is, for pleasure focused on sexual gratification, is central to what it means to be a self. The purpose of life and the content of the good life is personal sexual fulfillment. This principle also reorients thinking on the purpose of sex. The purpose of procreation for Freud is subordinated to the purpose of personal pleasure. In making this claim, Truman goes on, in making this claim, Freud is asserting that true happiness is sexual satisfaction, and therefore the way to be happy is to engage in behavior that leads one to be sexually satisfied. For Sigmund Freud and for those who came after him, the chief purpose of our bodies, of human activity, especially of sexual activity, is personal pleasure. And the only way, he says, to be happy as a person, to feel truly fulfilled in your humanity, in your inmost being, is to be able to express yourself in whatever ways you please, by your sexual activity. This comment, uh, this, this analysis by Truman of the work of Sigmund Freud is extremely insightful for our world today, isn't it? All around us, we see these ideas uh, of Freud played out on the world stage. Everywhere you and I turn, people are claiming that if they're not able to express their own personal sexual preferences whenever, however, and with whomever they please, then they are being oppressed. They are being denied personhood. But by contrast to this, beloved, Christians must stand firm on the truth of God's word. We must contend for the faith against these lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you and I must say that the only way to be truly happy The only way to be truly fulfilled in life is to live not as pleases me, but to live as pleases the Lord. The chief end of man is not 
personal glorification through sexual enjoyment. No, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Instead of seeking as our society does and as uh, these men that Jude warns us about do, they, they, they seek their happiness and fulfillment and licentiousness and sexual expression. Christians must long for the things of God. You and I must use our bodies in ways that please Him, in ways that He has commanded us in His Word. We must obey God in all we say and do, living as befits children of God Most High, the redeemed of the Lord, living as sheep under the providential care of our Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. When we do that, we see that God's great design for intimacy, sexual intimacy, was reserved only for that important covenant of marriage. That is the one place where you can fulfill your sexual desire. Every other avenue of sexual desire is sinful. We must stand firm in declaring that truth that basic truth to the culture around us. Even when we look like fools in the eyes of the world, we must stand firm on God's word. Jude touches on all of these themes and more throughout his letter, but in these final two verses, these verses which we will consider in depth this evening, he turns from condemnation to commendation, from chastising the wicked to encouraging the saints. Jude ends this short letter with a doxology of praise to our God and with a word of blessing, a a benediction to the people of God. Many New Testament authors end their letters with some sort of final greeting, perhaps well wishes to members of the church or announcements of plans to visit or other such things. But Jude doesn't do any of this. Instead, he draws this short letter to a close with a doxology and a benediction. In this ending, Jude is here ascribing to God that which is due to him alone. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And he's also pronouncing a blessing upon his readers. Jude's letter then ends with this strong statement of God's greatness and worth and a pronouncement of blessing upon God's people. These verses are part doxology, part benediction, though they've often been used in many churches as a benediction at the end of a worship service, as we'll do even later this evening. But maybe... Perhaps, uh, for those of you who haven't been in uh, a Christ church for long, maybe, or, or other uh, Reformed liturgical churches, maybe you've never thought much about the benediction as an element of worship. Or perhaps you've been curious as to why the minister stands up and pronounces one at the end of every service, or what exactly the benediction is, what it does. Or perhaps you're like me, and the benediction wasn't part of worship services You've attended in in other churches. 
growing up in an evangelical church, I don't recall hearing a benediction as we departed from church. Services were typically ended with some other form of dismissal, maybe a generic prayer, but not a benediction per se. But friends, without a benediction, without this final closing word of blessing upon the people of God, our worship services would feel incomplete, wouldn't they? We would feel as though there was something missing if we didn't end our services with the good word of God's blessing upon us. Over and over throughout our services, our worship services here at Christ Church and in the Reformed tradition, we hear God's word boldly proclaimed in the reading and the preaching of Scripture, in the proper administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We hear God's word in our prayers. And when we sing, we sing God's word back to Him in praise to Him. Our services begin with God's word in the call to worship, and they end with God's word in the benediction. And the whole time, all throughout the worship service, there's this this gospel logic, this word-centered approach to worship. And the whole time, we are reminded of those great promises that God has made to us in His word. Our faith is bolstered by the ministry of God's word. It would be incredibly anticlimactic to go all the way through our worship service, hearing again and again the wonderful promises of God proclaimed from word, sacrament, and prayer, to then just end the services like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Well, that's all, folks. See you next week. The benediction is the proper way to end the worship service, because in it, the Lord, through an ordained minister of the gospel, pronounces his good word upon us once more. In the benediction, you and I receive the precious promises of the blessing of God one final time so that when we leave, we do so in the love, the grace, and the mercy of our great God with the peace of God upon us. Michael Horton, in his excellent book on worship called A Better Way, says that in the benediction, quote, one last time, God addresses his people. Grace has the last word as the people receive God's blessing through the minister with raised hands. He goes on to say that God's covenant people depart bursting with thankful hearts because they leave with the assurance that God is on their side and that they stand under his blessing rather than his curse. Derek Thomas, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, says this in his new book on worship. He says, quote, At the end of the service, we hear God's promissory word of protection and provision, care and counsel, help and hope for the week to come. It is, that is, the the giving of the benediction is a gospel moment. We are God's adopted children, Thomas says. Jesus is our elder brother. The Holy Spirit is our strengthener and advocate. So, come what may, we are safe and secure, end quote. The benediction at the end of every worship service is a wondrously joyful occasion 
Because those short verses, wherever they come from in Scripture, those short verses pack a powerful gospel message. In the benediction, you and I receive God's blessing once again. And we are reminded of the promises that he makes to us, to his covenant people, through our covenant mediator, Christ our Lord. And as we receive the benediction, we are sent on our way back into the world with the blessing of God upon our hearts and our minds. How appropriate then is Jude's benediction in verses 24 and 25, which reminds me and you of the great joy that we have because we are partakers of the grace and the mercy and the love of God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. This wonderful doxological benediction sends us on our way back into the wilderness of this world, remembering that the only God who is alone worthy of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority calls you and me, his beloved sons and daughters. This is the great God we worship, and this is the great God who puts his blessing, who pronounces his peace, who shines the light of his countenance upon us in the benediction. It's this great God, the only God, our Savior, to whom belongs all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Well, the benediction at the end of this letter in verse 24 begins with Jude reminding you and me that God alone is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God alone is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, from falling away. In God alone through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you and I have assurance that God will never leave us or forsake us, that God will never fail us, that God through Christ will keep us from stumbling. The English Puritan and pastor Thomas Manton says in a sermon on these verses that, quote, if we are left to our own feet, we shall soon fall and get a knock, end quote. But we are reminded here that we are not left on our own. For God in his word promises to be with you, to keep you from stumbling. Manton then goes on to say that throughout the week, we hear the words of the flesh and the world and the devil. He says that the flesh tells us, I shall fail them. The world tells us, I will deceive them. And the devil tells us, I will take them away. But in the benediction, and in this particular benediction where Jude tells us that God keeps us from stumbling, Manton says that God tells us, quote, I will keep them, never fail them, nor forsake them. And there, he says, lies our safety. Manton goes on to say that, quote, the world is full of snares, we are carnal, and there are carnal persons about us. And the devil is a restless enemy, watching all advantages. And surely having so much pride in us, and love of pleasures, and so many worldly desires, 
we give in to the devil too often. Therefore, unless God keep us, we shall be tossed to and fro like a feather with the wind of every temptation. Jude has spent a lot of time in this letter telling us about those temptations that will lead us away from God. But he's also reminding us here that God will keep us. He will hold us fast. What great hope is that? And this assurance that God keeps his own dear children in his love is a wonderful theme that we see all throughout Scripture. In Psalm 121, the psalmist rejoices in God's watch care, in God's love, in God's keeping of his people. Let's look at that psalm. Psalm 121, turn there with me in your Bible. This is one of those songs of ascent that the people of Israel would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the yearly Passover. And in this psalm, they are reminded of the great promises of God. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever more. The Lord is your keeper. He will keep you. What a wonderful comfort we have from God's word in Psalm 121 and in Jude 24 that God will keep all his own. And dear one, this wonderful promise of God is yours in Christ. God will keep you And Jude begins and ends his letter with this encouraging reminder that God keeps you in his love. In verse 1, we hear the promise that we are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 21, you and I are exhorted to keep ourselves in the love of God. These are reminders that the Lord has us, and that we must remain steadfast to him, holding on to his promises. These, in verse uh, 1 and in verse 21, and then again in verse 24, these are the positive uses of the word keep in this letter, but there are also some negative ones, as we've seen as we've worked through this letter. In contrast to his beloved people, whom God keeps in his love and care, God keeps his enemies under his wrath and judgment. In verse 6, the rebellious angels are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The Lord has reserved punishment for those who disobey his word and who live in licentiousness and rebellion. And Jude, throughout this letter, contrasts these wicked men with God's saints by showing the opposite ways that God is keeping both of them. One in his love, the other in eternal darkness. The Lord, Jude tells us, keeps us 
And he keeps us from stumbling. He keeps us from stumbling. And he will also present his people blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This text of God's word, especially as we look at these words that that the Lord uh, will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, presents each each of us with a dilemma and should cause each of us to look in the mirror of God's word and examine our own hearts. Ask yourself, will Christ present me blameless? If you are in Christ, Christ will keep you from stumbling. And Christ will present you blameless to the glory of God, not because of any work that you have done, but only because of the mercy and grace that is lavished upon us through Christ's mediatorial life and death. The work that Christ has done will keep you in God's love and will present you blameless. But at the same time, on the flip side of this, if you are outside of Christ, you will, like those angels, like these men Jude is condemning throughout this letter, be kept not in the love and mercy of God, but in eternal darkness. In eternal darkness. By saying that Christ will present his people blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, Jude isn't saying that after we come to faith in Christ, you and I will be perfectly blameless and without sin. No, that's a grave theological error called perfectionism. The basic claim of perfectionism is that if you work hard enough, if you kill your sin enough, there will come a day during your life here on earth that you will be completely free from sin that you will be completely perfect. But this is not what Jude is promising when he says that Christ will present us blameless. No, dear ones, you and I will never be free from sin in this life. So long as we live, so long as we breathe on this earth before Christ returns, sin will cling closely to us. You and I are fallen creatures, but there is great hope. Because through the blood and righteousness of Christ, all who repent of their sin and believe in him will be saved. All who repent and believe in Christ will be brought out of the kingdom of sin, out of the kingdom of the devil in which we have lived under the power and dominion of sin. And we will instead be ushered into the kingdom of Christ where our Savior and our God rules and reigns. All those who believe in Christ will no longer be slaves to sin, unable to do anything but obey their passions and their sinful whims. Instead, those who believe are slaves of righteousness, servants of Christ most high, and vital members of his body, his bride, the church. It's only, dear ones, in this way that you or I will be kept by Christ and presented to God blameless by grace through faith. 
Because on that last day, when Christ comes to make all things new, to bring his own people into glory with him, it's on that day that all who are in Christ will become, will be presented to the glory of God, blameless, glorified in the presence of God's glory with great joy. Dear ones, on our own, you and I deserve to stand under the curse of God, not under his blessing. We deserve all of the punishments that have been outlined in the book of Jude. All of these things that he says are coming upon the wicked, licentious men who rebel against God deserve to be ours because of our great sin. Your sin and my sin is grievous. And sin cannot go ignored or unpunished. Because of all of our lying and stealing, our backbiting and gossip, disobedience, hatred, our wandering eyes, our lustful hearts, our idolatry, our covetousness, because of all of this sin, each and every one of us deserves the judgment of eternal fire, the personal torment that Jude says throughout this letter, will come upon all who hate God's law and rebel against it. It should be yours to bear. But dear ones, those who are in Christ do not receive the curse of God. In Christ, we receive the blessing of God. And you and I can only receive God's blessing, God's benediction, because Christ our Lord received God's supreme malediction upon the cross. His word of judgment. In a powerful sermon on the curse motif in Scripture, R.C. Sproul gives a reinterpretation of the ironic blessing from number six, showing the pronouncement of judgment that Christ received because of my sin. Because of your sin. This is what Christ bore for us. On the cross where Christ became sin for us, he did not hear that ironic blessing. He did not hear the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. No, instead on the cross, as Sproul says, Christ heard, may the Lord curse you. And abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Dear ones, Christ bore that malediction, he bore the wrath and curse of God so that all those who believe in him by grace through faith would not bear the curse of God, not bear the wrath of God, but would instead bear the love and blessing of God. Christ, God incarnate, our beloved Savior and Lord, has done it all. All that is required of you is to repent of your sin and believe in him by grace through faith. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that because 
Christ bore the curse for us. We bear the blessing of God. We thank you that in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. That in Christ, all, uh, we, we all who believe in him and repent of our sins are washed white as snow. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to walk in this newness of life. Help us to walk in a way that befits that great blessing that is pronounced upon us at the end of every worship service. May we, O oh God, live as pleases you in the light of your countenance and in peace with God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.